You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Twitter hack is looking more like high-grade, low-end crime. It also worries people over the disinformation potential it suggests. People care, they really do, that someone hacked COVID-19 biomedical research. Australia joins the UK, Canada and the US in blaming Russia for Cozy Bear's capers. Russia says it didn't do nothing. IBM gained some insight into Tehran's cyber operators. Rob Lee from Dragos with thoughts on the Ripple 20 vulnerabilities on industrial control systems. Our guest is Sal Aragema from University of Tulsa on fake Antifa Twitter accounts. And CISA's serious about getting the feds to apply Tuesday's Windows patch. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, July 17th, 2020. Twitter's investigation of its Wednesday afternoon hack continues. Amid much expert worry about how the ill-intentioned could use a hack like this one to disrupt political campaigns and the organization of polling. But it now seems probable, if surprising, that Wednesday's hack was criminal and not directly state-organized. Reuters reports pre-hack chatter on a gray market forum that's frequented by gamers, swappers, and skids, and this particular chatter offered to sell Twitter accounts. That suggests low-level criminal activity as opposed to state-directed espionage. It's not just that offers to sell some stolen commodity appeared. State-run operators do that too, often when they wish to be mistaken for simple criminals. Consider NotPetya as one example. Sometimes when they're letting criminals whose services they've suborned profit from their hacking, and occasionally when they themselves wish to profit directly. But in this case, the outcome seemed messy, and disproportionate to the relative smoothness and ambition of the attack. That looks like crime. Reuters quoted Allison Nixon, chief research officer at security consultancy Unit 221B, who said, quote, When you have these less professional criminal groups, you see chaotic outcomes. One member might stumble across a powerful hack, and it spirals out of control. That's probably what happened here, end quote. So, good hack, bro. Now, what are you going to do with it? I know, let's do a Bitcoin scam like the Nigerian prince's widow. Whatever, yeah, totes. It's happened before. When the Mirai botnet first appeared, it took down internet service across a large section of the U.S. Atlantic seaboard. Wasn't, as widely believed at the time, a Russian shot across western bows, but rather the work of a student at Rutgers who was pursuing some vaguely conceived grifting by getting a competitive advantage in selling Minecraft commodities. Krebs on Security has published some suggestive, albeit preliminary and inconclusive evidence, that it was indeed a well-executed but not fully thought-through criminal scam executed by a SIM swapper connected with the Chuckling Squad gang, perhaps by a gentleman who uses the hacker name Plugwalk Joe. 
He's believed to be an early 20-something British student somewhere in Spain. In any case, investigation continues and the FBI has taken up the case. A great deal of concern has been expressed about the potential of such Twitter hijacking to serve the purposes of disinformation and influence operations. It didn't in this case, but given the extent to which, alas, people get a lot of their news in the form of tweets, the prospects are sobering. They are even more sobering when one considers how Twitter has come to be used for emergency notification. Twitter's own security certainly took a black eye. Perhaps the incident will serve as a learning experience for social media generally. So Cozy Bear lapped up some COVID-19 research honey. So what, you might ask? So the Russians get a vaccine too. Big deal, right? Well, putting aside the issue that it seems only reasonable that even biomedical researchers shouldn't have their honestly earned bread stolen from their children's mouths, there are also issues of free-riding on research costs. And then there are also considerations of privacy. Bloomberg interviewed a Darktrace co-founder who says that Cozy Bear's hack of COVID-19 biomedical research put patient data as well as intellectual property at risk. The research inevitably involves underlying patient data. Darktrace thinks that collecting such data can drive AI modeling that would accelerate vaccine development. A problem they see is the rise of patients losing confidence that their health data would be protected, that this might even discourage people from, for example, going to get tested. Bloomberg doesn't go into this, but unauthorized access also always raises concerns about data corruption, whether deliberate or inadvertent. So the incident is worth taking seriously on a number of levels. Australian intelligence services have joined their Five Eyes sisters in the UK, Canada, and the US in pointing to Russia's Cozy Bear as the actor behind cyber espionage directed against such research, the Sydney Morning Herald reports. The Herald also has an explanation of how the stolen trade documents British Foreign Secretary Rob mentioned were used in last year's British general election. They serve to drive the Labour Party's retrospectively absurd contention that the Tories intended effectively to privatize the National Health Service and sell it to the Americans. Russia's embassy in London, responding to unfriendly statements by Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab, said that Russia didn't hack any biomedical research, didn't attempt to influence any democratic elections, and that it reiterated its offer to jointly investigate and adjudicate cyber issues. The statement closed with this, quote, we have also taken note of the Foreign Secretary's suggestion that the UK government reserves the right to respond with appropriate measures in the future. In this regard, we would like to state once again that any unfriendly actions against Russia will not be left without a proper and adequate response. End quote. These are familiar tropes in Russian cyber diplomacy. We trust the word processors in Kensington Palace Gardens, Wisconsin Avenue, Charlotte Street, Canberra Avenue, and for that matter, Messine Road have them loaded as shortcuts. That saves a lot of time and typing. We're particularly struck by the routine Russian expression of interest in seeing the evidence and coming to a mutual understanding. We're sure we'll hear it again. Finally, CISA is serious about the Windows DNS server vulnerability mitigated this week. Emergency Directive 2003 tells U.S. federal agencies to apply the patch by 2 p.m. Eastern Time today. And hey, that deadline is now in the rearview mirror. We hope you all got it done. 
And we might add, what's sauce for the feds is sauce for the geese and ganders on Main Street, too. Please patch. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The problem of inauthenticity online, especially on social media, is a complex issue for social media providers to tackle. They can run the gamut from celebrity impersonators to sophisticated state influence campaigns. Sal Aragema is Associate Professor of Computer Information Systems at University of Tulsa, and he and his colleagues have been researching inauthenticity online, including fake Antifa Twitter accounts. The core issues around this topic in general, but definitely specifically for the fake Antifa U.S. account, kind of comes down to that, you know, a fake account was used to spread disinformation on Twitter. And while Twitter and other social network platforms have gotten better at automated and manual fake account detection, and they're really good at detecting bots now, it's still kind of a game of whack-a-mole. And the key issue of identifying disinformation and stopping it being spread on and between social networks, today it's, it's an important task, but it's pretty much almost impossible to completely stop in a timely manner given how we are operating on social media today. Do you think that blocking inauthentic accounts is effective? Oh, it, it definitely does a job in terms of preventing inauthentic accounts from continuing 
to spread disinformation and manipulating. The problem is, is that the the rapidity of whether it's automated or even individuals setting up fake accounts makes it so difficult to, once you stop a bad actor from spreading information, the SOP now is basically, well, I've either already got one, another account set up, or I can quickly and easily set up other accounts to continue my path. And you know the echo chamber of the type of people that listen to these messages whatever the whatever the content is you know it's easy enough to get back into those groups even if a fake account or disinformation campaign is stopped it's easy enough to get back into the flow of information because those those communities and groups and the type of message you're looking for the confirmation bias that goes with the things that they're looking to read about and spread that doesn't change just because you get rid of a fake account Social media platforms have definitely gotten better at doing this, you know, especially since the 2016 election interference by Russia and added in human review to help with that. So they'll use these automated techniques to help elevate potential platform abuse and misuse accounts so that humans can get more involved. But that's a timely process. So even in the case of the fake Antifa U.S. account, that account was reported. We don't have the exact details of how it came to Twitter's uh, attention, but that account was suspended within 24 hours of that tweet, that, that famous tweet that went out. But it took over 24 hours for uh, Twitter to identify, well, it, it is a known you know, racist organization that manually set up this account. And that challenge of attribution in social media is the same problem we have with attribution throughout cybersecurity. You know, we, if we jump to conclusions on who is doing certain types of activity on social media, we, we run the chance of being wrong, just like you've heard about the many reports in the past of, of blaming a, an actor for, you know, inciting some information leak or an attack on an organization. So do I believe that the social networks are working hard? Absolutely. The challenge we really have is a fundamental issue with with social media. Do the platforms themselves uh, suffer from a bit of, a, um, I don't know, I suppose a, a perverse incentive of, of if they're all about engagement and people who are upset tend to be engaged, people who are agitated tend to be engaged – uh, is it is it best for their own interests to stir the pot a little bit or, or to allow the pot to be stirred? Well, yeah, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head there. Engagement, keeping people on the platform is what keeps these platforms in business so that they can advertise and sell product and, and other services. So they are definitely at odds with the problem. So there needs to be, for the social media perspective, is they need a clear understanding of what is allowable and what isn't. The problem is that changes, that bar keeps changing depending on what's happening. Now, you would think that certain things are pretty clear, like, you know, child sexual exploitation. That one is a clear easily defined and the social media platforms are very quick on that and there's no no debate on whether they are for or against that but then when you get into the political realm in particular and definitely for more divisive issues whether it's um you know whether it's race issues in in this country or whether it is pro-life movements and things like that you don't have the same straight 
cross the line and I can make a decision on this, it becomes much more subjective. And that subjectivity is really the challenge for social media. And like, how do they keep people there talking about these topics? Yet when it goes over the line of decency, how do they stop it? And definitely the misinformation part. That's the disinformation and misinformation spread is the biggest challenge for social media in this context. Fake accounts are bad. Yes. What is the real bad part of fake accounts? It's more the unimpeded spread of disinformation and misinformation that really has the societal impact. That's Sal Aragema from University of Tulsa. If you want to hear an extended version of this interview, head on over to thecyberwire.com. You can find it there in the Cyberwire Pro section. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, we recently had the story come by about um, this series of vulnerabilities that are collectively being called Ripple 20. Uh, this has some deep implications and affects a lot of things. What's your take on this? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a uh, research uh, put out by uh, JSOF Research Lab, um, and, and they, they published it basically saying, here's these vulnerabilities as they relate to the TCP IP software library. Um, so it's a, a library developed by Trek Incorporated. It's used all over the place. There's a big focus on IoT here, but it's actually a little bit further reaching than that. Um, it's, it's actually quite a bit popular in ICS or industrial control systems world as well. So impacting everybody from Schneider Electric to Rockwell to, you know, different industrial automation vendors, you're going to find this impacts uh, basically embedded devices all over pretty much every industry, but very heavily electric and oil and gas, um, transportation, uh, that, that kind of world. So everyone should take a look at it, but especially the ICS security community is going to need to be on top of this one. Um, anytime that you find vulnerabilities that are uh, of any sort of criticality that touch on underlying software stacks, especially things like TCP IP stack, um, those are right targets for adversaries to take advantage of. And they allow a lot of network capable impacts. And when we think about IoT, but also the IIoT or the industrial IoT, you start talking about industrial control systems, um, network access is the game. We don't think about system-level security as much like enterprise, where it's like, hey, let's protect this system. It's more systems of system security. And so network access, network control, um, that's stuff an adversary is definitely going to take advantage of. So I think these are pretty impactful. Uh, my analysis and our analysis over at Dragos to our customers has been, look, this is just a further acceleration of your plans around doing network monitoring and, and segmentation. I think segmentation is a good strategy, but it's a one that no matter how much you do, it's kind of not what you think it is, especially with kind of the, the digital transformation that companies are going through and hyperconnectivity. But the the importance of monitoring in those networks, think like network security monitoring and and uh, in, in this case, like ICS asset identification and monitoring, that just became even more critical. And if I can kind of be the what's coming in the future kind of note is this doesn't surprise anybody in this community. A lot of these software stacks, a lot of these OEM components are all over the community. It's not well documented of what vendor has what thing. And when these devices get deployed for 15 or 20 years, the research community, as they start poking, are going to find way more things. 
and and the necessity to monitor in those environments to be able to identify exploitation. Forget the patching piece. That's not the issue here. But it's can you identify adversaries taking advantage of these classes of attacks, these classes of vulnerabilities? That's where we're pushing people because it's going to be more common, not less common. Yeah, I mean, the the reporting is saying that uh, these libraries have been out since the late 90s. And so, I mean, is is it right to assume that that means that, you know, for for many of these things, we're not going to be seeing bug fixes? Yeah, we won't. Um, The the big problem, and this goes to actually some of the things that like the I am the Calvary people have been advocating over the years where they're saying, look, there's not a good software bill, bill of materials for a lot of these companies. You know, when you go and talk to the Schneider Electrics and the Rockwells and the Siemenses of the world today, they're putting a lot more focus on tracking their inventory and understanding what's there. They're, they're being pretty proactive, actually. But that's for 10 years from now. The, the state of the union for the next 10 years is all of this equipment that you bought and purchased from yesterday on back 20 years ago. And there's that's what we would call brownfield. And you're not making significant dents in the brownfield, and you're definitely not doing it through patching. Some patches are critical. I'm not saying don't patch, but patching as a strategy for a, a ton of equipment um, in the environments that we don't even necessarily know what all is on that equipment is not the leading strategy here. And for some of those vendors, they don't know they have that software, so they won't ever issue a patch. And for some of the vendors, they may even be out of business in comparison when you bought it. So patching isn't going to be as effective of a strategy against these types of vulnerabilities in these environments as it would be an enterprise. Again, not saying don't patch, but it's not as effective a strategy and it has a lot of complications to it anyways, which is why we always push for, hey, at least be able to monitor. If you know you got vulnerable equipment or you don't even know if that equipment um, has that software stack, that's fine. But you should be able to detect when somebody is trying to access it or exploit it. Um, that's that's the leading strategy. Then you build in your protection and response strategies around that. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.